Heavy Cardboard Episode 32, Argent the Consortium. Coming to you from the home of Lucifer, the demon horse, Denver, Colorado. <laughs> Welcome to Heavy Cardboard, where we talk medium and heavy strategy board games, war games, 18xx, and other related topics in the board gaming hobby. We're your hosts. Tony. Edward. Hey. Straw. <laughs> Tell everybody how to contact us, man. All right. On Twitter, at Heavy Cardboard. Facebook, Heavy Cardboard. Uh, our website, heavycardboard.com. We love hearing from you guys, so email us early and often, within reason. Uh, contact at heavycardboard.com. Uh, well, a couple more things. Let's see. We got our guild, yes. BGG number 2044. Join we, us. We just hit the 400 member yep. mark, which that was pretty cool to see this week. That's a good size guild. Yeah, I, I think so. It's top like seven, I think, now for podcasts. And like, Not that I look for stuff no, no. like that. <laughs> well, you know, whatever. The peeps make the guild, too. They yeah, do. I mean, it, it's really them, not us. Well, especially, yeah, because, yeah, pretty much that sums it up. Uh, thanks goes out to... I'm going to butcher this, I think, but TOEF, uh, here in the U.S. T-O-F? T-O-E, yeah. Yeah. As well as uh, Paulo Renato over in Portugal. Thanks for the iTunes reviews, fellas. Uh, Much appreciated. And for everyone else who hasn't, keep them coming, please. Y'all, helps us out. Before we get started, let's remind everybody about Gamesurplus.com. They are the sponsor of Heavy Cardboard. Reach out to them at games at gamesurplus.com. Tell them Heavy Cardboard sent you. Visit their website, www.gamesurplus.com. Great inventory of games. A lot of imports. Fantastic folks. Yep. Check them out. So I've been watching uh, Fear of the Walking Dead. Oh, that's the spinoff of The Walking Dead, right? I have not seen it yet, so don't spoiler it, but how is it? I I like all things post-apocalyptic. Sure. And uh, this one's definitely starting slow. It's only been three episodes, and the first one is character building. The second one is more of that, but they're hinting at what's coming. The third one was like, oh, crap's starting to hap. And I can't wait for the fourth one, because fan hit yes. Okay, cool, because I'll be honest, I, I started watching The Walking Dead last year, mm-hmm. and a buddy of mine uh, suggested it, and I, man, I gotta say, talk about just archetypes, just stereotypical <laughs> yeah. archetypes. I was like, the peoples? who writes this, because it was just terrible, but I got hooked, but I really... It's just a soap opera with zombies. Yeah, it really was not my cup. Yeah, I didn't cool. think it was good, but I'm willing to give the new one a chance. Yeah, you, you probably think the same about it, but... I'm sure. But I'm into it. Yeah, cool. Rock on. Nothing wrong with that. Nah. So Labor Day has come and gone, and uh, PC came up and stayed with us for the whole thing, and we got quite a bit of gaming in, so that yeah. was that was pretty cool. Good friends, food, and gaming. Got At least got you got one day. And one day. At least. That's right. You know, the... There's a bit of illness in the family going on right now, and so that was pretty much my Labor Day week. Right, which I feel bad because, like, here we are, like, woo, we're having fun and everything, right. and you know, I, I sounded like Fred Flintstone, ricka fracka ricka ricka. <laughs> <laughs> so our auction, um, I think it was more successful than I expected. At least uh, now comes the massive undertaking of yeah. shipping everything. Hopefully that'll be just as successful. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, I'm sure the people who bought the things will will appreciate that's right, that. That's right. uh, hopefully um, all the shipping should be done by the time this airs. That's that's the plan anyway. So thanks to everybody who bought stuff, and hopefully you all enjoy it. Indeed. 
Uh, let's see. Denver Broncos have uh, fired up. This is one of my favorite times of year because hockey and football are getting started. It's also one of my saddest times of year because that means winter is getting started. But fall is starting, which is the best time of year yes. here. Um, baseball's independent races, which I'm excited about. College football has started. The NFL is started, and hockey's around the corner. So, yeah, it's a good time to be, well, us, I guess. Broncos uh, look, looking shaky Saturday or Sunday. To say the least. Uh, quick turnaround. They, they better look darn better on Thursday against the Chiefs. I, I hope so for your sake. The Chiefs aren't the chefs anymore. They are not. Uh, Av's rookie camp started yesterday with the veterans reporting this weekend. I'm just, I'm, yeah, I'm so stoked. <laughs> and... Uh, I want to I want to give a shout out to uh, Nils, who is a fan of the show in Germany. Uh, he and I were uh, talking in uh, Geek Mail about uh, Colorado sports. Apparently, he's a big fan of the Broncos and the Avalanche, and uh, specifically Peter Forsberg, former Bronco, and, and Peyton Manning, or for, the, for, for, former former Avalanche. Right, yeah. right. Hey, probably could have played football too. <laughs> right. um, he got. I found it interesting that um, this is a common thing in Germany. I, I guess I gather from the conversation we had, where like people will adopt U.S. sports teams um, based on various things. And so, like for Nils, it was because he used to watch Wild America when he was growing up, which is an old PBS nature documentary. Okay, and he like fell in love with the Rocky Mountain area things, and so he started like checking out, you know on the internet or whatever and you know got caught up with the broncos and the avalanche and i thought that was pretty cool that's very cool you know it's funny because like i'm not big into soccer okay sure um or or football across the pond Mm. um footy whatever anyway i'm not a big fan of soccer however i realized that soccer is really the only major sport in which i don't have a dog in a fight like i don't have any any teams and so like for you know, whether it's, you know, UEFA stuff or whatever, I'm like, man, I could choose any team. That is so foreign to me. And so I, I've been wondering how I should go about doing that because maybe maybe then I'll be interested in soccer if I had a rooting interest or whatever. Right so, on. yeah, maybe very similar. Like, huh, I wonder what each town represents and what the history of the team is and, and all that stuff. Well, so, in the EPL, I like Arsenal because it they're, they're the Gunners and they were originally like employees of an arsenal back way back in the day oh, I, just, okay. I think that history is kind of cool and um internationally i like uh, portugal okay so and uh, just for no other reason except for i i just think portugal is kind of just a cool looking atlantic coast country it's just, it's and it's a, super tiny just a little tiny thing like glued on to spain yeah, they or have something. one of the best teams in the world yeah man so that's impressive that's cool um so let's see what else a couple more guild related things okay. i guess uh, we have a Sacred Santa starting up in the guild. I had... Sacred Santa? Yeah, Se- Secret <laughs> Santa starting up. Last year, I had tried a little bit late in the in the season to try and get one going, and the guild was still pretty tiny at that point, and so there wasn't much interest. But now there seems to be about 30 folks or so that are interested. Yeah. And if anybody out there listening is interested, come join the guild and jump on the thread and, and holler, say you're interested. Should be a lot of... Excuse me. It should be a lot of fun. Chris, uh, one of the guys in the guild, yep. um, he asked if he we minded if we ran it. Said, here, please, by all means, go for it. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Yeah, so that should be fun. I won't say thanks yet. We haven't seen how he runs it. Oh. I don't know. <laughs> no, no. Just messing. Uh, last thing I got here is 
uh, I started a geek list because somebody in the guild had started a thread about, hey, suggestions for upcoming episodes. So I was like, well, why not make it a geek list because it'd be easier to track that way. Plus, we can look at thumbs and, you know, all that stuff and have one item per. Right. And so I started up a geek list where people can suggest games uh, that they want reviewed on the show by us. And if it's something, if you have a suggestion to give... Go post it on BGG. Um, I'm pretty sure I'll put the, the the link in the show notes for anybody interested. But yeah, should be fun. Now, obviously, I mentioned this, I, I think, somewhere in that geek list. We only do 26 episodes a year because roughly twice a month mm-hmm. or twice a twice month. Twice a month. So 24, I guess. Um, so there's only so many games we can feature in a year. So just because we didn't hit yours yet, hey, yeah. we're not going anywhere anytime soon. We have many years. So yeah. Be patient. Cool. Cool. All right, sir. What new games have entered your collection? Uh, there's been four, four since last episode. Triumph and Tragedy and Churchill from GMT. They, okay. Like I had mentioned previously, they had uh, honored the P500, even though I was hella late getting them the credit card. Uh, 2038, Tycoons of the Asteroid Belt. Okay. A couple of listeners had a, a BGG auction, and I saw it. And actually, some people said, well, I was going to bid, but seeing as Edward from Heavy Cardboard is uh, bidding on it, that means he'll probably review it at some time, and I'd like to hear about it. So, yeah, I won't bid against you. Yeah, I'd like to give it a whirl. That works out. Yeah, it's uh, 18xx set in space. Looks pretty cool. It's definitely an older game. You can tell from the artwork. Oh, yeah. And everything. 1995. Which is funny that that's an older game. I guess that's 20 years, isn't it? Jeez. That's old, man. It is. Wow. And this is an antique. In my <laughs> it's new and shrink. So, yeah. so thanks, Don, for that. I appreciate it. And last but not least, this might be unbeknownst to you, but yeah. Locomotive Works. Um, so I Gee, had, do you, is that unbeknownst to me? <laughs> I gave uh, I gave your daughter uh, Jess a copy of Scoville. Yes. Instead of putting it in the auction, you were like, "Well, if there's anything you want." Yeah. And I was like, "Well." If no one buys Locomotive Works, because I, I like it, I know you were kind of, yeah, it's okay. Uh, yeah. I'll, and Amanda was kind of, eh, that's all right, too. And But I liked it, and I yeah. wanted to hold on to it. But I figure we'd let the universe decide if nobody bid on it. Right on. Then, uh, then I'd Someone take bid, it. but it didn't hit reserve, so. So, yeah. Sorry. So, there you go. No, actually, it works out. Yeah, I don't yeah, mind. Perfect, yeah. yeah. So how about you? Anything? Uh, the only thing I received was uh, through the courtesy of uh, Paul Chad. He brought me a copy of 1856 out of the blue, man. That yep. dude. I knew about it like a couple weeks in advance. Thank you, Chad. Uh, let's see. Uh, as far as hunting, anticipating on the shopping list, well, nothing. I'm really just waiting for Essen. That you know, there's a there's a there's a copy of Discoveries that probably has my name on it that I'll go get because the wife loves dice games. She okay. Likes, she likes dice games and. I love the art in that, so, um, yeah, but nothing of any, yeah. Yeah, that's literally what I have yeah. written here. Nothing, biding my time for yeah. SN slash BGG con. So, I mean, there's lots of games, but nothing that bef- between now and that. So tell me all the games I missed while uh, you guys were playing this uh, past Labor Day weekend. Yeah, there, there were a lot. So, obviously, Argent the Consortium. Going forward, it's just Argent. Uh Arboretum, and man, do I suck at that game, but I really, really enjoy it. Yeah, that's cool. So I tweeted out a picture of that, and uh, some people were like, oh, yeah, heard a lot of mixed things about that. And I'm like, wait. Not people, from us. <laughs> people don't like that game? Yeah. Really? You that's... will not hear mixed thoughts from us on no, what that game is. I think it's fantastic. 
Solid Ger- filler. Ger- agreed. German Railways, we played that twice. Awesome. Uh, we played it once three-player and then uh, again on five-player and realized that, yeah, we much prefer it four or five-player. Um, very cool turn order or lack of turn uh, yeah. like leveling mechanic in that. It's a, it's an old Winsome, which I'm not even going to try and pronounce the original name no. of it. But, uh, yeah, very, very enjoyable. Um we played 1873 Harzbon, which you were a part of. Uh, it's kind of... Well, two we ga- we two played ga- uh, into the game, like halfway through. Right. And, and just to like learn the mechanics. A five-player, all of us knew learning. Yeah, that was crazy. And it felt like it was two games in one that would kind of merge together. A mining game and an 18xx game. Very odd duck, and to be honest, a mother bear to learn. Mm-hmm. But there's definitely something there. It's it's very different from a quote-unquote normal 18xx mm-hmm. uh, game. And somebody had said that it was designed as an economic game, then given to developers that are 18xx guys, and boom, we have a Franken game. Yeah, you can definitely see some Frankenstein elements in it, but um, I, I'm with you. I think, you know, there's... There's something there. I definitely want to play it another... I want to play a full game. Maybe, oh, I want to play multiple times. Maybe without five. Yes. You know, we had five people learning the game. That was brutal. Yeah, I will never do that um, again. But hey, that's that's what the environment was that right. day, and we, we fought through it. So yeah, looking forward to uh, trying it again. Yeah, 1873 Harzbon. A, uh, an odd duck, but one worth investigating, I yes, think. Yes, a very good-looking duck. <laughs> uh, a couple games of Noya Heimet. Um, and for me, it's an easy top ten. No, it's not here. Kiker! Yeah, he forgot. I And I forgot to pester him. So, sorry. Uh, it's an easy Man, top ten game for me. I better know. I know what you better be saying in confession. Because <laughs> I know you go to confession. What Tony's getting at is, is our buddy Matt. Had got him a copy uh, back when copies were available. I, I think when the game first came out. <laughs> no, it's, not quite that. It's long. been since before HeavyCon, <laughs> yeah. and uh, Tony's still waiting for it. And so, yeah. Anyway, no um, I feel bad. He's cool, dude. I feel bad for our buddy Ken. Uh, he'd never played it, and I knew he'd want a, a copy after we played. So, yeah. sorry about that, Ken, because that's not cheap. Like um, in one of those games, Matt, a different Matt than the one we were just talking about, his wife was somewhat. Um, Sharkish. At oh game? yeah, yeah, yeah. The, we played. Yeah, with Dana. We played two rounds. The first round, she got house. The second round, she did the house scene. Gotcha. So um, she learned her lessons. She, and... <laughs> she did. Yeah, that was that was a lot of fun. Uh, for such a simple game, my yeah, man. lord, is that a mean, just brutal auction game? But wonderful. Love it. Also played the grizzled twice, and I can confirm it is much easier three player than five player to want to hmm. win the game. We won one game of it, uh, okay. our second game, so that was that was a lot of fun. Uh, also played Praetor, which I know you, uh, you're going to talk about here in a bit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, played uh, Saturn, got broken out a couple times, Very which cool. is a great little. Yeah, yeah. Hey, we're waiting on people. Let's hey. get something to the table. Plus, it looks cool. Um, a couple more. Time's up. Title recall. We played this twice. It's a party title game. Title recall. Yeah, uh, it's probably the hardest I've ever laughed in my in my life. <laughs> um, funny little thing here is uh, one clue was the movie Speed, and in the third round of the game, you're not allowed to say anything. You just have to pantomime. But everyone's familiar with what 
the clues are, right? So the movie was Speed. Tony K.R. was in the game. Okay. Well, Tony K.R. got his nickname for two reasons. One, he's Korean. And two, he looks a whole lot like Keanu Reeves. Yes, he does. K.R. So Amanda got the clue. And during the round, like I said, you can only pantomime. She looked over. She saw Speed. She pointed at Tony K.R. And then like she was driving a bus. And it was just... <laughs> it might be one of those things that was just... You had to be there, but it was hysterical. Absolutely so, funny. Did they guess? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> right it on. was like no problem. And then there was my boy Paul Chad, who instinctively thought it was a good idea to not just move on after I an- answered incorrectly about the location of Flying Victory, but to correct me that the location of the Statue of David is in Florence, Italy. I'm so glad I have a- for friends thanks <laughs> thanks chad appreciate that uh okay two last games all right princess of machu picchu uh it's a matt gertz yeah, kind of a, under the radar or older overlooked whatever sure. uh not a rondell <laughs> right right uh has variable ending conditions and it's really really weird um you either can save machu picchu or the Spanish takeover. Oh. And depending on which ending condition happens dictates how the scoring is in the at the end of the game. Okay. And some people really like it and some people absolutely detest it. We thought it was a fine game, plus it has llama meeples, which That's is cool. which is cool. I thought it was it was enjoyable, but it's not something that I'm jonesing to play again, but okay. I do think you should play it at least well, once. You, yeah, I definitely wanna play many games. That are not obviously <laughs> not in my wheelhouse, and yeah, I do want to play that. I've I've generally heard and read, you know, it's not his best work, but it could be a fine game. Yeah, so. and another one with variable end conditions that I am just dying for you to play, and that's um, Martin Wallace's Liberté. Yeah, uh, sounds very, like I must. Very simple. Uh, it's right, yeah, yeah, yeah. somewhere over here. Uh, it's a very simple mechanical game to where you're just. Adding or taking away blocks, and then there's elections. It takes place over four rounds, and the game can end one of three ways. Either the radicals, the the red blocks, they win 15 elections. Awesome, red or is maybe radical. it's 17. Uh, the, the white, which is the royalists, if they control, I believe it's seven provinces at, the, at any time, and somebody points it out, and that's the killer. <laughs> somebody has to point it out. You can't do it retroactively. So if somebody just took a block and you'd be like, oh, wait, wait, no, they had set up. Sorry, too late. Or if you notice it and don't say anything, the game doesn't end. Hmm. Or the game ends after four rounds. And only then, if it ends after four rounds, do you count victory points. Other than that, it's all about who has the most blocks of that color at that given time, whether they're red or white, depending on who ended the game. Really, really, really interesting game and really enjoyable. Right. And I think featureable, featureable, yeah, easy for me to say, um, but a lot of fun. All a right. lot of fun. We played it so far, we played it three player and four player, and I'm anxious to play it both five and uh, six player as well. Goes up to six? Yeah. Cool. And it's going to be hella chaotic, but a lot of fun, I think. I know. So how about you after that, you know, huge, long thing? Uh, sounds like I missed out on some some pretty good stuff. We had a miserable time. You didn't miss a thing. Oh, thank you. All right. <laughs> um, let's see. So uh, the the additional game that I got in was uh, played some Orléans, some Scoville, Caverna, 
piece of cake and uh, Masters which, of Venice. Which it's pie. I it's know. pie. Why but is it called piece of cake? The German name doesn't. It repre- I forget, The German name is like more whipped cream or something like that. At least that would be more honest. Yeah, and then you know, stupid Americans. <laughs> so what was the last one? Masters of Venice. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And I know uh, Paul Chad's really anxious to get a play, hopefully this weekend. Sounds good. Cool. So let me know, sir, since I have not played it yet, is this next game that you're going to talk about a triumph or a tragedy? (laughs) Well played, sir. Triumph and Tragedy, designed by Craig Bizenkay, published just recently in 2015 by GMT Games. Plays, it says it plays two to three players and plays in about four hours or so. To be honest, it's made to be a three-player game. It can be played two-player. And it says four hours. In our experience, our first game with all new players took us about six hours for the first game. But I think it's it's reasonable to get it down to three or four hours once you're experienced. Cool. So what's happening in the game? Triumph and Tragedy, to be honest, it's kind of hard to define. You can call it a war game. But there may be little to no actual war in the game. You can call it a political game, but that kind of cuts half the game off. So let's just call it a very cool political, military, economic, integrated design of the game, eh? All right. All right. So it's a three-player block and card-driven game where players control one of three major powers. The Axis, mainly Germany, but also Italy. Okay. The Soviet Union. And the West. The West, you control Britain and France and possibly later on the U.S. Okay. The game starts in 1935 with all three great powers virtually disarmed. Germany's gone back on the Versailles Peace Treaty, initiating an arms race in Europe. As with almost all block war games, the nature of military buildups remain unknown to the other players unless and until... Military conflict breaks out. The game may end peacefully, or there may be war. There are game sanctions for attacking neutral miners or declaring war on an opponent, and there's rewards for remaining peaceful. Hmm. It's a true three-sided game. There's no requirement that the West and Russia have to be on the same side. There's nothing to say that Germany and Russia are at war, and Britain doesn't just try and sneak in and take over a couple of... uh, the Soviet's capitals and wins the game. Hmm. Alliances are shifting. Cooperation's undependable. The game can continue as an economic battle of attrition or a sudden military explosion can change everything. There's immense replayability as players can pursue dominance in Europe via land, sea, and air military superiority, technological supremacy, or economic hegemony without rivals, realizing their strategy until... It is too late. Highly interactive, tense, fast-moving game with little downtime between turns, covering the crucial geopolitical decade of the 20th century in four to six hours. Hmm. So I originally had this big, long thing written up for this, and then I was like, you know what? This is just too much detail. So I was like, you know what? To hell with it. Scrapped it and took this off the front of the uh, game page. So apologies for that. When we review this, hopefully later this year, I'll give you guys a, uh, a better synopsis. More dog and pony. There you go. All right. So the game gives tension. And the f- I'd like to describe it. Keep in mind it's only after one play. But I, I am want to describe it as an influence battle like in Twilight Struggle with the simplified war game feel 
of a block war game. Okay. And it's it's a really, really slick mix of those. Well-integrated political, military, and economic resource decisions that are simple mechanically, but man, do they give you agonizing decisions all the freaking time. <laughs> um, I, you know, I haven't played. <clears throat> I would like to play. I, I hope you do play soon. <laughs> yes. Um, but I did do some reading about what other people are thinking about the game, and I just picked out a few like little quotes to maybe throw past you. Sure. That you know, one thing is like it's politics, intrigue, research, failures, successes, and paranoia about your rival's intentions. Pretty much, because you you can see people building up blocks and building up power, you know, strength, but you don't know what it is. Could right. be a sub, could be an airplane, could be a, a, a artillery, could, infantry. You don't, yeah, you don't know. Says a uh, simple and straightforward game with emergent gameplay. Absolutely. In fact, I have that on here as far as the emergent gameplay. Because of the way, just it, it's very ahistoric. Let me start with that. All sure, right. Sure. So the game takes place, like I said, from 35 to four, or 36, 36. To, thir- to 45. The game could, war could break out in 1939, like it did. Sure. Um, or you may never have war. Um, which unlikely, seems weird. Which is completely unlikely, but possible. Um, Craig Bizenke actually mentioned that uh, during the WBC, mm-hmm. there were uh, uh, 10 to 12 games going on throughout the whole thing, and no two games were alike. That's cool. And so if, I mean, that's kind of a one way to put emergent gameplay, the fact that everything is up in the air. Everything can, is mm-hmm. up for... Things can change. Like, yeah. there's no set way that the game's going to play out, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Well, I, it might have been that same thing where I read that there are no perfect plans or same old, same old. Again, one play, but sure. I've read a lot of the same things. And the next time I hear something bad about this game will be the first. The guys at First Minnesota, mm-hmm. which is one of the great wargaming groups around, sure. these guys... It, apparently they've been playing the hell out of this for months and months and months, and it just keeps getting table time. And it's single, right. it's single sitting, meaning four to six hours. That's that's a reasonable gameplay, especially for a war game. I love that name, First Minnesota. Yeah, that was, that, that was a killer regiment in the Civil War. <laughs> <laughs> Yankees, though. So to kind of circle back, I, I was mentioning agonizing decisions all the time. Well, for instance. You get resources. Each year, you get to spend these resources. So let's say you have you know, anywhere between 8 and 14 resources in a given year. They're just generic? Yeah. yeah. It's uh, one resource that you spend mm-hmm. gets you one thing. And the different things that you can spend it on, you can invest or you can either draw investment cards or action <clears throat> cards, each one being one point of resources. Okay. You can build new units or put new blocks out on the board. At one pip, which is the lowest uh, value right. on a, uh, of a block, and that's one okay. resource. Or you can add strength or exi- or pips to existing units. Again, one pip equals one okay. resource. Train them up. Yeah. You have far more that you need to do than you ever possibly can, so it's all about prioritizing and, you know, making lemonade out of lemons. Nice. <laughs> Great mix of simplicity and mechanics with, uh, you know, depth of gameplay, which which we touched on. And the thing that I think is really cool about this is it's really easy for new war gamers, uh, but with plenty of excellent decision points for experienced war gamers. Amanda came in, and she's played one war game, 
and I say that kind of loosely, Maria. Sure. She'd played that once. So she jumped in. Uh, our buddy Phil taught the game, and it was uh, me, Amanda, and Scott skipping. Mm-hmm. And she had no problem. She was holding her own as the Soviets up until the bombs started falling and Germany invaded. At that point, she realized she had her, her lines a little thin. Yeah. <laughs> she, uh, she well, did. the Russians really did have their... <laughs> <laughs> and so she, she kind of got her, her hindquarters kicked a little at that point, but she was able to understand what was going on and to not only be competent, but she cool. had a really good time. And my point, I'm not saying this because she's a woman. I'm saying this because she hasn't played war games. Right. And the fact that she was able to jump in there, and here we have Scott, who plays ASL, um, and they were they were able to both get enjoyment from the game. And I think that's, that's fantastic. And I loved it. I absolutely cool. loved it. Right on. Uh, a legitimate three-player game. Um, like I said, there's no reason, uh, you know, uh, Germany has to go up against both Britain and, or the the West and the Soviets. Right. It could be that the Soviets and Britain declare <laughs> war on one another. Only Who that knows? doofus Hitler would really do that, <laughs> right? But yeah, in the end, it's it's a great game. Period. But it's it's also a really I like to think it's going to be a really good meeting place for Euro gamers and war gamers to meet as well. Okay. So uh, there were some questions from the guild about. TNT? Yeah. Um, so, I'll ask it, you answer it. Okay. First one. Do you see a general trend in newly published war games to include more political elements than before, and how do you feel about it? Um, I guess maybe mixed for me, just because in war gaming sense, I'm, I'm a more of a historical gamer, and, and when political means history-changing player negotiation, I tend to maybe... Um, not be as intrigued by that for as long. It's like novel, cool things, but I really want to play World War II. Okay. You know what I mean? So, um, in other words, even though, say, you're playing the Germans and you know the Germans end up losing, you're yeah. okay with that sure. as long as there's some kind of weighted well, I'm, or something. There, has to be, there doesn't have to be anything weighted because, uh, you know, I'm a historical war gamer, so I have no problem being... Uh, the Seventh Cavalry on uh, June twenty fifth. <laughs> Little Bighorn, uh, yeah. Right? Okay. I, I, you know, I have no problem being the Austrians at Austerlitz. You know, it doesn't matter to me, right? What I want to do is, is be in the situation and see, you know, how my decisions work out, as well as, you know, obviously the luck that is involved in some war games. You know, so, um, hey, the lion's share of battles and wars weren't fair fights. True. No sane general looks for fair fights. You want an unfair advantage, <laughs> right. absolutely. Right, so um, what-if scenarios are wonderful to me, and I, I kind of feel like maybe this is a what-if scenario of World War II. At the same time, it, to bring it back to Triumph and Tragedy, you feel the, the same kind of pressure and the same kind of frustration to where am I going to put my resources, where am I going mm-hmm. to okay, this can slack off and this is where I need to push. It's the same. You still get that feeling, even if it's not specifically the Germans must invade Poland in 1939, that type thing. Sure. You know what I mean? Yeah. So you you get the same feel, but it may not happen exactly as it did. And I personally am okay with that. Yeah, that's a what if. Right. You know what I mean? Right. So for me, I said with strategic level games... 
I think it's a great thing to see. War isn't all about shooting guns and dropping bombs. Diplomacy, politics, and such play as big a role as the actual fighting, so I'm all for it, as long as it's integrated well and it's not a bolt-on type thing. Mm. Cool. Uh, another question was, can you describe the appeal of block war games in general and what a, a good example would be to start with? Fundamentally, the block is no different than a chit with information on one side, right? Kind of. Um, well, I kind of had two main points that a block war game versus, say, your typical hex encounter game. Okay. First off is Fog of War. Yep, that's... All right. That's, that's, boom, that's the easy one right, right. there. Fog of so War. Fog of War, what that means is, okay, you see that somebody has a block, i.e. a unit, whether, right. you know, regardless of the scale, it's a unit. And you don't know what kind of unit that is, nor how strong that unit is. And so until battle begins and those blocks are turned face up for both sides to see, you don't know if you just are going to just walk all over this little right. one one pip dude or... <laughs> Uh-oh, what did it, I just get into? I, I think that, you know, that's like you go in there and you touch it to see what it is, right? Because it could be a a, a newly refit brigade of heavy tanks from Gross Deutschland Division or, or, you know, badass elite troops in World War II. Or it could be just some crappy Osttruppen just sent to this, this area of the front, right? So, so yeah, that's uh, hopefully that's a succinct way of describing what block war games are and i i am a huge huge fan of them i really enjoy them simplified but they don't have to be simple so summarize this sucker well my time with triumph and tragedy has been short with only a single play thus far but given the quote-unquote single sitting playtime and the fantastic blend of politics and block war game in my opinion it's a legitimate contender for my game of the year for 2015. What? Obviously, we still have the Essen releases to come, but I don't know that I've had a better time at the table with the 2015 release game yet. It was that good. Highly recommended. As far as a rating, it's too early to tell, but to be honest with you, with everything that I experienced, that what I've played and what I've read and what trusted friends have told me, I can't see this being below a 5 in the future but time will tell and hopefully we'll go ahead and review this later on this year that's triumph and tragedy by gmt all right tony i'm curious to get your take on the often overlooked game of praetor ah thank you uh yes i was definitely investigating the game and realized that you had a copy so I swiped it from you and tried it with the wife and uh, my son and his daughter, or my son and his wife, and uh, everyone's has enjoyed the game. My wife said, uh, "Yes, I'd like a copy," and I happened upon one at the LGS. And uh, hey, twenty nine bucks. I figured, what the hell? Let's grab it. So anyway, Praetor is a twenty fourteen release from designer Andre Novak, and some games that you may have heard of that he's done are Versailles. Exodus Proxima Centauri, and Progress Evolution of Technology. It's a two to five player game, and the game can take as little as an hour with smaller counts, but will definitely go longer with higher player counts. The theme is that the players are building a new city in Roman Britannia, and they're also building Hadrian's Wall. Each player has eight dice that represent workers. The value on the die indicates the worker's skill, but the dice aren't ever rolled. 
you begin the game with three workers, a strength one, a strength two, and a strength three worker. And the five other dice are not available to you until you gain new workers during the play of the game. And when you gain those new workers, their starting skill is a one. Every turn, you're going to place your workers on the previous built city tiles to gain resources, increase your morale, hire new workers, train new workers, gain favor points, which are the victory points, etc. You can also assign some of your workers to build new city tiles. Every, every turn, there are some tiles that are available that are going to cost certain resources in order to construct and create future worker placement spaces. At the end of every turn... You're going to have to pay your workers some moolah. They definitely want, uh, they want, to, they want to be paid for their uh, heavy lifting. Crazy, 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 I crazy. Tell you. And if you uh, don't have enough money to pay your workers, your morale is going to deteriorate. Which, again, makes Which, sense. Yeah, and it will cost you victory points at the end of the game. Most of the actions your workers are going to perform are going to help them gain experience, i.e. the die value is incremented by one. If I send a worker of strength two to the lumber yard... I'm going to come back with two pieces of lumber and a strength three worker to use in future turns. And the reason you come back with two lumber is because you sent a level or a two pip He was a two when he got there. Right. Uh, Eventually, as these workers increase in their skill level, they're going to retire. So when they hit the value of six, boom, they get retired. And that's going to bring you some additional favor points. And you're still going to have to show some solidarity with those workers and pay them their pension, though, for the rest of the game. Uh, there are some cool little places that will let you reuse your retired workers. And heck, man, they're, they're a, a skill level six. So sending that guy to the lumberyard comes back with six pieces of wood. Right. You know? A lot of times it makes sense to do so. So some of the cool things that uh, I've, I think I see in the game are that the way the workers gain effectiveness by doing certain actions and then get retired, I think is very cool and, and uh, for me, the best feature of the game. The retirement, you're saying? Just the or? whole way that workers come in as ones, they'll build up to two, three, four, five through taking certain actions, and then when they hit a six, they're retired. Right. I, oh, I, I think that's, it's innovative, I think was, was a good way to describe that. Uh, I, I didn't mention Hadrian's Wall. There's another thing you can spend your valuable resources on. That's building Hadrian's Wall, which is just spending resources and getting points, basically. And um, But the way they add up in their points is pretty neat. Like the first one you build, is just, you're just going to get face value. Then you flip it over, and it's got a plus three on it. So the next one you build is going to be worth its face value plus three. You flip that one over, and now you got two plus three. it's cumulative, yeah, exactly, right. It's kind of cool. It does incentivize the players to not ignore those. Right. The upkeep is pretty cool, I think. You know, paying the money and potentially sacrificing morale if you don't have enough money. I like upkeep in games. You know, Agricola, for example. I think that's a, a neat pressure. The the Speaking of the pressure, the player boards are double-sided. There's a side A and a side B, and the side B r- ramps up the difficulty uh, in terms of the expenses that, you know, workers become more expensive and definitely challenges you more than the A side. The A side's... Um, really, Vanilla. yeah, it's it's present the challenge, but it's not really there. It's 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 easy enough to keep enough money on hand, which is the side that in my one play that I played, yeah. and I was like, yeah, it doesn't feel that constricting, but I bet the B sides do. The first time I played, I played the B side, and the other two players played the A sides, and I got whacked. I was gonna say it didn't end well for you. I imagine no, no, but it was cool. Um, I, I do think, though, um, on maybe some negative side of things, that the game can 
quote-unquote, go longer than it needs to, longer than it should. And I say can because if the players are aggressively building the buildings, that's actually going to end the game before the Hadrian's Wall tiles, which is the other clock in the game, would. And the game is actually a, a reasonable length. But I found that might only happen with two players, really. So when the wife and I were playing, we were very aggressive building the buildings. The game was over really quick. Okay. But yet, in our th- uh, three-player game, I think it was, right? right? It was you, me, and Dana. Yeah. And it got to the point to where we were like, we want to take some of those... Hadrian's Walls tiles out because this is going longer than it should. And that's the easy thing to do. Just take some out and play a quicker game. One of the things that really kind of freaked me out at first was the money in the game where the the gold pieces are worth one and the silver pieces are worth five. Which are bass backwards. (laughs) Yes. And that's what I thought too. I was like, gee, that's going to suck. But you know what? It wasn't really a big deal. Um, One thing I like slash don't like is there's a mechanic of the mosaics. So when I build a, a city tile, uh, each corner of that square tile has a little mosaic pattern that I can get extra points on if I match it up to some of the mosaics that are on the existing city tiles. <clears throat> I just find that it unnecessarily slows the game down while someone's like, oh, if I put it here and twist it like this, and like, place the damn thing, man. It's, <laughs> it's worth three freaking points, and we're going to score 200. <laughs> It's a valid point, actually. I do like it, but it was I, get, I, I get your point. It's unne- unnecessary. You could you can peep the designer forums and things like that. Uh, the designer did some fixes. There are some potentially overpowered city tiles, whatever. I was going to bring that up if you didn't, but yeah. okay. All right. Um, so anyway, I, I really wanted to review this game because I dig Rome, and it's a game that some people in my family have enjoyed. I've enjoyed it, too, sans the length of it at times. Uh, you know, I dig worker placement, and um, but you know, my first play was like, "Hey, this is cool." My second play was, "Hmm." Third play was like, "All right, we're <laughs> we're good here." <laughs> and see, that's the whole reason I didn't put it in the auction is I wanted to get a couple more plays like on the B sides and stuff. Right, right. Maybe the next auction. Um, and so, you know, I just wanted to share that in case we have some similar tastes. Um, there are definitely some cool ideas at play in the game, and some reasonable worker management decisions to make. But I definitely feel like the game shows signs that it had a need for additional development. Like it's, it can go too long, the stupid mosaics, um, the potentially overpowered tiles, etc. Um, the gameplay, you know, for its length also is just too too linear and too long, too long, and um, that easily exploited scoring kind of contributes to the length of the game as well. So uh, the best praise I can give this game, though, Edward, came from your mouth. Oh. You said... So isn't it, by default, me giving it praise? I, well, but me, <laughs> me echoing this, right? Okay, it's like, I got you. And, and in these circles, heavy cardboard circles, this is a fairly damning praise, too. And you said, this is a perfectly enjoyable game. I'll just leave it at that. So uh, my rating is, without the mechanic of workers gaining experience and retiring, this is a clear two. If the game was shorter or better developed, a four, so I'm going to give it a three. All right, I think that's a that's a fair take. So somebody in our in our guild had asked the question, uh, why is Praetor a bit of a flop given its mechanical innovation? So for me, I don't feel like it's a flop. It's just unspectacular. Yeah, it's it's fine. It's got some neat ideas. It's got a, um, a six point eight two BGG rating from the masses. I I haven't rated the game. I really wouldn't consider that a flop, but. I'll just let the uh, the little mini review speak for itself. 
one other thing that I I feel the need to bring up is yeah. I've been pretty excited in the past about a lot of NSKN games, only to be disappointed with them. Um, mm. And I just... It's now become a publisher that I'm like, oh, wow, that looks cool. Yeah, I think I'll try that before I buy it now. Right. And this is just kind of carrying on that that theme that I found with, with NSKN games. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. I just figure I'd throw that in there. That's Praetor. Hold your head up, boy. Hold your head high. All right, Argent the Consortium, published this year, 2015, designed by Trey Chambers, artist Jennifer Easley, and Eunice Abigail Tiu. Published by Level 99 Games, plays two to five players, and they say it plays 60 to 150 minutes. Availability and cost. MSRP, you're looking at about 60 bucks, but it can be found for about 40 bucks online new. And as far as plays and player counts that we've experienced, I've now played the game five times. I've played it with two, three, and four. I have not played it with five players. How about you? I only have 1.5 plays of this game with my current schedule of sickness medical and care and yeah, yeah, right. me being sick too and all that kind of crap but um yeah the point five was me and you just learning the game sure after work one night and then uh uh yeah we i played it three players all right yeah so can you pronounce that artist's name again <laughs> <laughs> what the heck <laughs> eunice abigail tiu wow i actually went on the google girl. and and googled how to pronounce the tiu part cool so you're going to tell us how this game is played, sir? I certainly will. Albus Dumbledore is stepping down as headmaster at Hogwarts. <laughs> you, as one of the professors at Hogwarts, aspire to succeed him. Oh, wait, you don't like that theme? All right, let's try this one. The master engineer of the local locomotive engineers guild is stepping down, and you, as one of the other high-ranking locomotive engineers, is angling to step into that role. Is that better? Yeah. Seriously, though, the game is set in Level 99's World of Indines. It's a fantastical place of magic and where everyone seems to really enjoy beating the hell out of one another. Which kind of fits, since you're going to be doing a lot of that in Argent. <laughs> Regardless of the theme, your goal is to win more votes than the others vying for the headmaster position. The votes of whom, you ask? Well, the so-titled Consortium Voters, of course. Whoever secures the most votes will be named the headmaster and wins the game. Bottom line here is that it's a very in-your-face, take-that, worker placement and worker displacement game where your workers, mages in this case, right. actually do stuff for you. Don't get me wrong. I love me some regular action-drafting games, but this one's definitely different. First off, there's no victory points. At the beginning of the game, there will be 12 of the 18 possible consortium voters placed on the board with only two of them face-up known to all players. The other ten are unknown to everyone at the beginning of the game. Knowing what each of the voters wants is the key to winning their vote. One may want the player with the most money, or knowledge, or other thing that you'll acquire during the game. Some tricky bastards they can be may want the second most of yeah, something. That, that's pretty cool. You'll just have to work at secretly learning what they're going to vote for. To do that, you'll be sending out student workers, i.e. mages, i.e. workers... <laughs> 
of the five different schools of magic to go do your bidding and get the things that you need to win the voters over as well as discover what it is exactly the voters want. But each different school of magic or different colored worker has a special ability that makes the game oh so devious. One allows you to wound other mages and opens up the spot for you to take. One one type is immune to wounding. The third allows you to place it as a quote-unquote fast action, which is kind of like a mini pre-action each turn. The fourth is immune to spells, and the final one allows you to cast a spell and then place the mage, giving you two actions at once. Players on their turn have five options for an action. They may place a worker, or mages, on the player-built board, just as you would in a standard worker placement game. Sure, they may get bumped out by another player later on, but the gist is that everyone will take turns placing workers a la dominant species. Second thing you can do is cast the spell that you may have learned. Third is use an item that conveys some type of item or money or special ability. The fourth is use a one-time supporter that's similar to the things I just the items that I just mentioned. Or lastly, you can take a bell tower card, which is the timer for the round. Once all the bell tower cards have been chosen, the placement phase of the round ends and then you move into the resolution phase. In a procedural direction, players resolve each room on the board top to bottom, left to right, until all the rooms have been resolved. Again, think of a game like Dominant Species to get an idea on how the resolution works, top to bottom, left to right. Mm -hmm. Players do this five, or possibly six times with an epic variant, and after the final round, the players reveal all of the consortium voters, and one at a time, award the voter to the player who has what each voter, or the most of, or the second most of, what each voter is looking for. Whomever has the most votes at the end, wins. If tied, whoever has the most influence points wins. If still tied, tied players go plant a tree and come back in five years. Oh, oh, wait, my bad, wrong game. (laughs) You get the point. So that's the overview of Argent. All right, let's start off with scalability. Okay. I think the game scales well, both with the board being different sizes depending on player count, as well as the number of workers that everybody gets to start the game. Mm -hmm. Haven't played it with five players, but from everything I've read... Maybe that's not necessarily a bad thing. Mm. And and to think the expansion allows you to play with six. Yeah. <laughs> bad thing in terms of uh, introduction of too much chaos with the uh, displacement aspect. As well as downtime and just how long the game plays gotcha. from everything I've heard. Okay. But, again, haven't experienced that. So, but, I mean, in your... Limited. You know, yes. Uh, I don't know. I, I think, you know, based on what you've just said and what I know about the game and how it scales it, Seems cool. I can definitely understand concerns at five and even six players, especially from a chaos standpoint. I mean, to me, that that's part of scalability too. Is like not you know, it's like that affects gameplay. Absolutely, yeah. and that's why uh, going back to Liberté, that's why I want to experience it at six. I'm not saying it's going to be great at six. Cool. Five, however. Mm. All right. Components and graphic design. Start with the components. You want to kick this off, sir? Uh, I thought the components were. Uh, there's a lot in the box, man, and um, I thought they were they were great for being able to produce that much material. Okay, you know, um, thick cardboard for the rooms that make up the main yeah, the, board and the tokens. Those and tiles everything. are yeah, uh, great chunky crystals for the mana. Yeah, uh, linen everything. 
Even the front and back covers of the rule book yeah. are linen, which I think is a really nice touch, and more people should get on board with that. It helps keep the uh, helps keep the the rule book in really good shape. I found I really really I had no idea I would like that so much, and I really do. Cool. The workers and the mages are plastic, but they're, the the sculpts are nice yeah, enough, they're and they're cool. all different sculpts. Yeah. So there's that. I hate the bases. Yeah. So let's talk about that for a minute. The the bases they're thin plastic. Uh, and the way the players' pieces are held to the bases. So the the mages, normally, like when you're a player color, like you get blue everything, right. whatever it is, or in your case, red. In this case, though, with the way the game works, is there are five different <clears throat> colors of mages, and nobody has that color. So you can have red mages, I can have red mages, everybody else playing can have red mages. But the way they're they're signified as your red mage is there's a little... Cardboard, cardboard thing. Yeah, marker yeah. that you put into the base that signifies that's yours. I just yeah. terrible. Um, yeah. it, we figured out a way. We'll we'll talk about that more. But yeah, not not pleased about that. Um, and the cards they they're bowing a little bit. Yeah, but I don't think it's but, a. It's but there's a major so many. Deal. I mean, that's probably and, a a cost trade off there. And they're linen finished yeah. as well, so that's nice. So overall, I would I would give the components a high mark, just not thrilled about the way the, the mages and the bases so, are. So what about the artwork? Well, I I guess I didn't really hit on that. Um I think the artwork is really good. However, I don't like it. It's not my style. No. I'm not a fan of it, but that's not to say that it's poor artwork. Is that fair? Uh, I guess. It's just not our thing. No, it's t- totally not. Right, but but I don't think it's bad artwork. It's a very anime, very yeah. kind of Which, Japanese anime, or yeah, yeah, that, that's all. Yeah, but <laughs> so graphic design, I found it to be mostly good, uh, redundant in a good way. With like on the cards. They have the symbols, yeah. but they also have a description underneath, which I think was a really nice touch. Yeah. And it, it makes the game less uh, uh, or more language independent um, in that respect. But it's also just helpful for us native English-speaking yeah. folk. The merit spots, however, on the board are an issue. The only way to differentiate a location requiring a merit badge is when it's not covered by a worker. So when you place your workers out there, your mages, whatever, um, onto the spots, yeah. it covers up <clears throat> the, the icon. Mer- yeah, the icon. Right. Why not have some way of recognizing it outside of that? Right. Maybe do it in a different color and do the whole banner thing. Yeah. You know, so I, I thought that was really a, a big oversight. It's not a deal breaker or anything like that, but it's it's kind of a, wait, how many it, Well, in general, the there? first spot is a merit spot, but some tiles have... It's the first two. And, and that's where it becomes an and issue. And there's some, it's the last one. <clears throat> so that's where it's an issue. Right. If they were all the same, eh, who cares? Right. Then you would just know, but yeah, right. not the case. All right, let's move on to the rule book clarity and quality. Well, first off, we actually learned the game by watching Rodney Smith. Right. Uh, watch it played. It's an uh, excellent video. Really good video. And there's a... Yeah, just go uh, and find it, and uh, we didn't even have to break out the rule book. Swear to God, we watched the video and played the game. Yeah, it was fantastic. So well done, Rodney. Um, but afterwards, I did go back through the the rule book, and I thought it was very clear and decently laid out for the basic game. Clearly defined definitions for, like, example, draft versus draw and stuff like that, and all that's explained. So that's fantastic. However, 
there are a number of ambiguities and instances where players are forced to either look things up on BGG or just mm-hmm. kind of use your best judgment type thing. Um, so for the basic game, I would say it, it was solid, but lacking for the more advanced game options. Okay. All right. So I'll pitch it to you, Sir Tony. Alrighty. What makes this game blank? Medium. Medium? Mm-hmm. Okay. So tell me why. Well, uh, let's start with the complexity. Um, I, I'm talking rules, complexity, mechanical complexity here, not complexity in play, right? And uh, I don't feel like there's a lot of complexity in the play. I mean, the rules are pretty easy in general. There are some interactions and things like that that can get, that can spin up a little bit. Um, there's something like folks do forget. I found um, that they oh, I can take a fast action, and then. Um, you know, as they're learning the game, which is no problem. You just teach them to remember that by hammering them with yours, and they'll pretty much uh, start to remember that. <laughs> you know? Shortly, they recall. Um, so, so I, while I don't feel like there's a lot of rules complexity there, there is a little bit here and there. How do you feel about complexity? Well, I feel like it's more of an overload of options more than it is rules. Uh, the rules get out of the way fairly quickly, mm-hmm. um, although it may take half a game to commit to memory, like what each mage's special ability is when you place right. him and stuff. What's the purple guy do? Yeah, exactly. Um, however, once you start experimenting with the, the plethora of variables, such as like the B-sides of player cards and B-sides of rooms and B-sides of mage abilities, there adds more and more depth there. I do feel that there Whoa. is more more depth. Depth? Yeah. Well. Or complexity. Is hmm. valid oh, Com- okay. Complexity but, nor diversity alone equals depth. No, a uh, valid point. A wealth of options is not depth. True. Uh I would say that it does add to the rules overhead because there are more <clears throat> So it adds complexity. It does. Yeah. yeah. Well, both. How's that? No. Okay. You'll never get me to say that that adds depth. <laughs> okay. okay. Fair enough. All right. Moving on to planning. I feel like it's it's fairly tactical as everything but the rooms are reset after each round of the five rounds. The spells, supporters, and vault cards. Mm-hmm. What do you? I called it tactic. <laughs> because <laughs> now uh, we're making up uh, words. Well, All right, that's, but, that's but, what we do. However, it may make sense here. Go it, it, because it's a mix of tactical and strategic things. The, the tactical is what you you know all the different play like boom that mage is out of there I'm in there and. Um, trying to protect earlier placements, and then the strategic is trying to learn what the heck those other ten voters are looking for, and uh, work towards them in your tactical play. Okay, I can get on board with that. Uh, with all of that complexity, uh, how much planning is involved in this game, in your opinion? Why, let's talk about that. Like, you know, what's what's the forethought, the thinking ahead, organizing activities to achieve a goal, planning? Well. It's funny, I actually have this kind of hit on a little bit later, Um, but we can go with it now. The basic premise of the game doesn't change game to game. Discover what the voters want and go get those things, whatever those things are. Also, you're trying to deduce by observing what others are focusing on what the voters that they know and you don't want. But again, game to game, the game's static. However... Due to the high amount of variability here with a lot of the B-sides, etc., etc., um, and the mixing and matching of all those things, how best to go about doing those things I just mentioned is kind of hard to nail down. So I think it definitely contributes to depth and weight. 
okay. to the game. Cool. How about you? Yeah, I guess to me it's really just about figuring out those voters and what they're looking for and just trying to pick off three of them, four of them. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, sure. Depending on player you're count. You're not going to get 12 a... of them, you right. know, so... Uh, so it's like, which ones am I going to pick? And then I'm going to go down that path and see what the hell's going to happen. And hope nobody else is. Or if they are, hopefully you're competing in the other ones. Guess I'll be buying red mages. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, luck and random factors. I don't, I don't think there's really much luck in the game. Any luck, really. But there's obviously there's tons of random factors with what cards come out. And those... those not necessarily bad random, right? There's variability random. Right. Well, I said there's a healthy amount of round-to-round randomness but not a turn during the actual individual rounds so like pre-game you have the board set up and mm-hmm. you know the different right. rooms that Deal you're going to do right. there you go plus 10 of the 12 voters are unknown so there's you don't know which ones are in the game and right. which ones aren't at the beginning of each round you get new spells supporters and bolt cards those are all wiped and, and drawn new every round then each time a spell or a vault card is selected a new one is drawn immediately, but not for supporters. So you're always getting that churn and burn of new things that are coming out yeah. that you have to adjust to. Uh, and then certain cards allow players to either draw, you know, draw three, keep one, or something like that. So there's there's quite a bit of random in those card draws and card lays, as it were, when they're drawn out for you. There's going to be some luck involved in those card replacements, too. Yeah. So What about the length of the game? What what's weird is, um, last weekend at my place, I was in a four player game. You were in a three player game simultaneously. Our four player game ended before your three player game. Yeah, it's um, it plays shockingly quick. It does. Two and three, um, and it plays in the right amount of time. I get is is how I would describe it. Playing with four. Yeah. Um, it it I don't feel like the the length of the game adds to the weight in any way, shape, no. or form, though. No. But it does. It it plays in the four player uh, with most of us being new or all of us actually. I had had that one three quarters play with you or whatever. Um, it took us two two and a half hours with four players. The three player and two player games, two player an hour maybe uh, with three players hour fifteen hmm. we noticed. Not including setup and teardown obviously because sure. right. this is a considerable bear. amount of yeah, that right. But, yeah, game length, I don't think, adds anything to the weight here. How about as far as getting it length? Well, like you mentioned, uh, there's a big table sprawl there, so there's a lot to take in. could be overwhelming at first for folks. But, you know, like you said, uh, place place mages a few turns and find out, commit to memory what the purple guy does, what the blue guy does. Right. Yeah, somewhere in the midst of your first play. You should at least get the mechanics down, no problem, I think. Oh, yeah. yeah, definitely. Let us discuss, please, some of the enjoyable aspects of Argent. And there are quite a few oh, here. Indeed. Well, first off, let's start with pregame. The board set up in the drafting of workers, or drafting of mages, whatever. There are only three board tiles in every game, the ones with the white borders. And those can be either the A or B side in a game. Mm-hmm. Player count's going to dictate the number of rooms used. So let's say in, I want to say in a three-player game, I think it's eight rooms are used. So that's five random plus the three. You can either draft them and then place it orthogonally adjacent to an existing one of the three ones that are out there already, or you can do it randomly. 
I think that's fantastic. I love not only can you can you do that, but you can then pick A or B side yeah. on that, which is which is great. And then after all that's done, you're going to draft workers. Everybody starts with two workers of their own color because the the five player colors are the same as the mages except for the neutral mages. And you can't have more than two of any color. And so if I start with purple, you start with red. Okay, you're maxed out at red. I'm maxed out at purple. But then we go around the table drafting them in a snake, you know, first to last, last to first, and first to last till you get five. And there aren't enough workers to go around. So it's possible that you might want a second blue or whatever, but you should have drafted it earlier. So there's, there's some... Not only strategic thinking, but there's some gamemanship in the draft pregame before the game starts. So one thing um, I think about the game is, uh, I, I you know, it's, it's fun, quick playing, but it has a it has a solid dose of nope. I want that sa- I want that space. Sorry about that. And I'm going to call this. I'll take that instead of take that because to me, take that smacks of. Random screwage. Okay, just like, like ar- uh, arbitrary. Yeah. Hey, right. I just drew a card that says somebody loses ten points. All right, Ed, take them off. Sorry about that. Whereas, I'll take that is like intelligent screwage. I'm not screwing you to screw you necessarily. I'm like, hey, sorry, dude. I'm going there, not you. So now, boom, you're out, and I'm in. That's that's actually a really great way to put it. Better than what I was how I had it here later. Um, it forces you to make contingency plans on on that. Yeah. Somebody says, oh, I'll take that. Okay, it, it's kind of a nice change from either perfect information or nobody mess with my engine games. Yeah, yeah. And and just because you can doesn't mean you do, right? Like, we've seen people just place red mages on spots right. without, you know, not on an occupied spot to crush someone. Right. You know, so it's not that you're, you're it's just willy-nilly all over the place. It's It's an intelligence screwage. I feel like there's a lot that goes on, goes into making a decision and what to do and when. Do I place a mage this turn? If so, which one? Do I place a purple mage as a fast action, which is like that mini additional action each turn, and then place another mage? Or do I place this purple mage and then I maybe cast a spell? Or maybe I send a green mage to a spot that I really need since they can't be attacked by red mages. Well then maybe I have the shadowing ability, which allows my mages to shadow another and gets the same benefit of the block spot where you are, but without the risk, since most can't, affect, can't attack shadowed spaces. So there's, I feel like there's, there's a lot that goes into yeah. a given decision, and, sure. it's, and also the timing. Because, right, I was going to say that, the timing of those decisions. Because if you, let's say you've already used your red mages, mm-hmm. the ones that can bump other mages... And you don't have a spell that can bump them. If somebody's in a spot you need, now it becomes a true worker placement. And the shadowing is a really neat mechanic on top of that worker placement. So that if you have the ability to shadow someone, you can actually be in that space with them, so to speak. And it allows you to delay, or may actually force you to delay, because you normally can't shadow your own guys. So you have to wait until it's an opponent's mage takes that spot. And so... it's kind of protected, right. like I said, but you have to wait until somebody goes right. there. So if nobody goes there, then you're going to put yourself at risk by putting a dude in a non-shadowing uh, location. And while I'm not too keen on the theme, 
Okay, wait, the that art. rhymed. Yeah, totally inadvertent. Just go with it. Um, I feel like it's well-integrated, kind of Euro meets Ameritrash. Mm-hmm. I feel like it does a really, really good job of, of merging the two, worker placement and Ameritrash. Eurotrash. Yeah, pretty yeah. much. Uh, I like that um, you can kind of sandbag on your turn a little bit, which plays into that whole timing thing we just talked about, where you could sandbag to some degree by casting spells or using some of the cards you've acquired uh, and kind of maybe delay where you're placing your workers to see where other people go. So you might have to whip out the red guy and, and crush somebody or whatever. But if you, you start doing that too much, the other players are going to flip a bell tower card to maybe hasten the end of the turn, right? That's, so there's a, that's there's exactly a, where I was there's going. There's a little dance there, right? And that's one of my absolute favorite things about this is the variable turn length or variable round length. And what you're talking about with these bell tower cards in, I want to say in a, say a four-player game, I think there's four of them. Yes, there are. And so I'll, maybe if I'll there's not a desperate time or at the, my first action... Maybe I'll flip a bell tower card. Yeah, I might just do it just for the hell of it. And maybe on my second turn, I flip another. So it puts pressure on the other players, but you're also sacrificing actions by doing that, not placing your own workers. But it it's kind of, like you said, it's it's like this fine razor edge dance mm-hmm. that you're doing between, you know, am I do I short myself actions and put pressure on the other players? Or it's also a counter to there's ways to get additional mages. Right. It's where you can have up to seven. Everybody starts with five. Hey, if you got seven and I got five, I'm flipping a card. And it's a good way to offset that. Uh, in a lot of worker placement games, having more workers is, is a benefit, is, right. is, 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 is vital, right? right? But this neuters that as long as players yeah. are working to, no, you're not going to get to place all seven. You get to place four. I might not be able to place one of mine, but you can't place three of yours, maybe. And I think that's just... Genius, genius design. I really like that. So you, you also need to look for ways that the game provides where you can get more than one mage out per turn sometimes because of somebody pressuring the turn. You know, so hey, I'll stick this guy on a quick action and a fast action, and then I'll place this guy, or I can do the spell. You know, so it's a, it's important to sometimes get out two mages at a time. Quick player turns. Since you get one, maybe two actions per turn, so right. the downtime is very little unless somebody's tanking, you know, APing a bit, which we don't allow too, too much, right, though. Right. Uh, tons of variability and replayability, which we've hit on, because not only do the rooms have an A and B side, the player, spe- the initial spell that every player comes with has an A and B side. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the mages, the, their special abilities have an A and B side. It's just... The very modular, but done in a, in, in a great way. Sure. One thing I dig is how the spells work, where you you need uh, knowledge to get them, and then intelligence to increase the capabilities, you know, of the spell. Like a level one, level two, level three spell right, of the same right, tree. Right. So, like, hey, I, I spend some knowledge and I acquire this. I'll just be generic here. This fireball spell, right? Then when I apply more intelligence to it, it's like a fireball plus one, then a fireball plus two with more intelligence. And I like that because that's that's symbolizing that I'm kind of learning more advanced arcanum and uh, using it against you. Right. Yeah. It's not victory point based. It's voter based. And having to discover the voters and or use other players' actions to deduce voters is both interesting and enjoyable. Mm -hmm. Let me give you an example. Okay. Hmm. So Tony looked at those two voters, and since he's been gathering a lot of money, 
Is that because one of the voters wants the richest player? Or is it because he plans to use that money to buy vault cards? Or possibly to exchange it for a lot of mana to be able to cast all those spells he has? I will never tell. I don't know. And so, it, but you, you try and use deduction with this worker placement game, you know, within mm-hmm. it, mm-hmm. to try and help further your own cause. And I think it's a cool take on a worker placement and worker displacement. And I'll take that <laughs> nice. mechanic. Uh, you mentioned the vault cards. I like them. They cost money. and um, Sometimes. I like the consumable. Yeah, sometimes. I like the fact that some of them are consumable and some of them are treasures. So those are reusable. But the consumable ones, boop, fire and forget. You know? Yep. And, and you know, you, you tap cards to, to show that you use them mm-hmm. and all that. So merit badges, I dig this. I like, I do. Influence points. So there's there's a influence point track, but these are not victory points. Mm. What this is is as you gain influence points, every seven you're going to acquire a merit badge. And what merit badges do is they give you the oper- the ability to no, nay. Let me try that again. Mm-hmm. They give you the possibility of going and taking an action that is one of the more, I guess, advanced actions. Mm-hmm. Well, it gives you better stuff, whatever right, right, it is. Right. The, the, the premier there you go. spot on each worker placement tile. Right. And some of them have two spots. Not, not right. just the shadow spot and, and, the, and the top spot, but some have two rows of it, etc. But without these merit badges, you can't take that action. You can take the spot, mm-hmm. but you can't take the action. Right. And there to kind of go back onto this planning thing, it's possible depending on how the order of the rooms came out when you guys when, when you started before you started the game where you laid out the rooms. <laughs> it's possible to place a mage out on a merit badge location spot and not have the merit badge yet. Right. But then subsequently have another mage on a location that's going to give you influence points, which will then give you a merit badge, so you will have it in time by the time that room resolves. Yeah, it's a very however, nice mechanic. However, you don't know if it's going to get bumped or it's going to you know get banished back to you, and it basically wastes an action, or they get wounded and have to go to the infirmary and get that pity bonus uh instead of the ip that you were going to or the two or three ip that you were going to get so now all of a sudden you can't even though you're on this spot with a merit badge because your other guy got kicked out of there now you can't take that spot so now you have to get the uh choose the other action which is take one influence point right instead and i love which is essentially a pass right you're right instead of getting this awesome thing now all of a sudden oh i just get this but you know, I, I've done this where I would place a mage on an earlier acting uh, spot just to pass and get that IP to send me to the merit badge spot for a later mage, right? So, I mean, even taking that one IP can be important at times. It can. But if you're planning on more than that and somebody bumps you from there, you better have a backup plan. Yep. Okay. Were there any aspects of the game or gameplay that were uh, less than ideal? There aren't a ton gameplay-wise, but there are a number... Overall, so I'll start with the gameplay ones. Okay. First off, I'm not a fan that all the tiebreakers for all the voters is the same. It's influence points. At the end of the game, whoever has the influence mm-hmm. point advantage has every tiebreaker for every voter. 
seems a bit uneven and a bit too much emphasis on that one thing to me. Sure. Um, so, and it kind of, it kind of... It does make influence points extremely valuable. But at the end, somebody's going to have the lead. Even if you're tied, whoever got there first, mm-hmm. yeah. they, they have the tiebreaker, the end. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, eh, it is what it is. Um, you had mentioned the I'll take that, and that kind of counters one of my what was going to be my next point that it can feel a little arbitrary at times. Some people will play it arbitrarily; they'll just go screw you to screw you, right? Um, like it could feel that way, but it won't necessarily be that way. Like for instance, if I know a voter wants the most purple spells, but you don't know that and you're on a spot that gives spells and there's only one purple spell available, I might kick you out of there mm-hmm. and not you know, choose to go second where I could to make sure that I get that one because I don't know what's going to get drawn <clears throat> after that. Right. And it might feel like you're like, dude, you could have taken the second spot, you know, that type thing. Sure, sure. And so, but I having what you said earlier with the I'll take that, I really I really like that it's, it's Scrooge with a point, with it a is. purpose. It is. AP prone players will crush your soul in this game potentially. Um, we don't pretty much allow that in our group. We'll start needling pretty good, um, so it's a non-issue for us. But I definitely could see that being a problem for some. Okay. Um, and like like we said earlier, the artwork is quite good, um, but it's it's just not a style I'm a fan of. But I appreciate the artwork. I just don't like it. Okay. I want to talk about the the hidden goal thing before we get too far okay. off of that sure. that you brought up because there, there's another aspect. There's I, I like the idea, but I feel that um, there's there's twelve and um, too many or too few. You mean? Well, uh, uh, it's a large range, and I feel that you're only gonna you're not gonna be able to accomplish eight of them actively. Oh, you mean as far as like win eight right. of them? Right. So I, okay. I feel like you know I'm gonna I'm gonna win two or three of them. I might win two or three more accidentally just because I happen to have one more mana than you or whatever. And I feel like it, it can keep the scores artificially tight. Huh. So, do, but, not, I, but the second most thing is a really cool twist. It is. Um, but, I mean, like, uh, scores seem close. And not necessarily does it always reflect gameplay. You know that's actually a valid point. Do you now? Not that I'm asking you to fix this, quote unquote. But is there anything off the top of your head that you think could? Well, you know there there could be. Yeah, uh, no, because I was thinking about your IP thing, but um, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Big picture anyway. wise, I get what you're saying. No, I, I think that's that's so, something to at least think about. I have accidentally earned points. I guess that's. A, Good way to put it, yeah. Okay, well, um, the theme. For me, it doesn't appeal to me in the least. Um, to be honest with you, that's the reason I overlooked it when it was on Kickstarter. Right. Uh, little to no interest for me, and honestly, there's going to be quite a few of our listeners that the art's mm-hmm. going to be a turnoff, and the theme, you know, oh, it's magic and all that. Mm-hmm. That's why I kind of joked around at the beginning. Oh, during the I'm intro. interested in this locomotive theme. Right, right. <laughs> if we can just figure out the stupid spells. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I know some people are going to be turned off on the theme, and I understand it. Yeah, um, I am. I'm turned off by it. Yeah, so. but I, I enjoyed the game, though, yeah. itself. So um, it's a massive table hog. That, that was my other point. Like, Extraordinary. You need, you need a bigger house to play this game. It is 
The and only game that I know of that, you know, I'm trying to think of any <clears throat> heavy game that we play, non-war game-wise, that has anywhere close the, the hog yeah. of a table than uh, this is. It's massive. Some 18xx's with all the different charters and stuff might take up a lot of table, but this yeah, is like a, OE. This is a big thing, though. Yeah, yeah it's, yeah, like yeah, OE. it's huge. Um, so, with it being a huge table hog, there's just a lot of stuff. <laughs> Hence the overload. Right. There, there's lots of new things to remember and track every turn, which isn't not necessarily stuff you want to have to track. What spells and vault cards and, and supporters do I have? What new spells and vault cards and supporters huh. just came out? There's no easy way to track which voters you, you, you know of. We laminated the player aids and used dry erase markers to track them. Not right. included, mind you. Um so the, it's just, it's a lot of stuff to track. Why is that um, disconcerting to you? I mean, like, we play games that have a lot of stuff no, to track. No, 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 I understand That's, that. I want a lot of stuff to track. And I do too, but it just feels different in this. Huh. I, I, okay. I, you know, I started to write down that those who are used to playing Fantasy Flight type games with just Ugh. stuff all over the table and everything, this isn't going to be odd to them or different. But for some reason, like you mentioned in 18xx a minute ago, in an 18xx, there's a lot to track. But it's not stacks of stuff. It's <laughs> these things right here, and I just have to work my way through how it all makes sense. Mm-hmm. And I just feel like it feels different. I know I'm doing a crappy job yeah, of explaining I, I that. get you can't put your, your finger on it right right this moment, but something just feels a little it off. It just feels different. It's different types of tracking stuff. Huh. It, maybe, maybe I'm off my rocker and you guys can tell me. That's fine. Interesting. Um, last but not least, uh, it's something we mentioned already, but I wanted to bring it up again since we're in the kind of negatives thing, is the way the player mages are marked, yours, mine, you know, Paul Chad's, everything... What we ended up doing, our fix, oh, yeah. was we turned the bases so that the player designation, the player color part, is facing the owning player. So if you're on four sides of a bo- of the table, table, you point it northeast, south, or west, depending mm-hmm. on whose it is, mm-hmm. and it's easy to track. It's a little wonky, and it looks a little weird it looks on weird, table. but you can see your guys. Right, and you know which ones are whose just by the way they're pointing. Would it have been so hard to just paint? The bases have them in different colors or something. Yeah. Something, but anyway, I yeah, that's the end of the negatives for me. Hmm, okay, so we had some questions from the guild about Argent the Consortium, and uh, maybe we didn't address these in the review. So let's talk about them individually. So Edward, two of the card tableaus in Argent refresh the moment a card is taken from them. The market row mechanic. A lot of people I talk to dislike this, and that it offers. Uh, dislikes this in general because they feel it removes an element of strategy when an unpredictable card draw can appear and heavily influence a game through a random chance appearance. This is actually what I was referring to with the, the luck of that earlier in the game. How do you feel this flux in the tableaus affects the play of Argent? No, exactly what you what you brought up. And in fact, I, I took this question out. Um, but Because I figured we, we hit on it already. Just it, it does add a fair amount of randomness that there's literally no way to control. Yeah. I, I think it's um, a pretty common uh, mechanic in, in a lot of games, and uh, I don't mind it in this game because it's, it's not a heavy game. You know, it's 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 a quick-playing game. 
Um, it's definitely going to be a lucky thing. And I was thinking, like, imagine in 1830 if the trains were randomly shuffled and drawn and stuff like that. Oof, blasphemy, I know. But, uh, yeah, yeah I, it's um, it's definitely a, a suck-wild thing when a card comes out there. Uh, as a result of your turn, a card comes out there, you're like, oh. That would have been good to have. Yeah, thanks. Right, or, yeah. oh, I just gave that to you. Right, the awesome. next person says, hey, great. Right. All right, next question. Did you have any rules mishaps? Do you feel the rule book could have even covered these rules to an extent that led to crystal clarity? Um, I never read the rules. <laughs> Fair point. I watched um, Rodney. Uh, I said we we did have a few instances that we had to look up on BGG, and once we started playing with the B sides of things, yeah, I do wish the rule book addressed more mm-hmm. of them. Um, there's a lot of holes uh, where... They might be edge cases, but they feel like they're common edge cases that could have been addressed. Did the artwork seem like a turnoff? And if another heavy Euro was good, but his artwork was very anime or some other unusual presentation, would it be unappealing at first glance? Yeah. I, like I said, there, there's a reason that I looked at this and, and just moved on. Just the, the artwork doesn't appeal to me. It's not what... I mean, you're talking to a guy who thinks Arkwright's pretty because I like the muted colors and I like the. That's so funny that you said Arkwright. Oh, why did you hear? <laughs> okay, go ahead. <laughs> um, if there was only an anime version of Arkwright available, <laughs> I would buy the game, remake all of the components in a new thing, a new theme. I'm thinking maybe early 18th century England using dull muted colors oh. and an almost nil graphic design. So oh, I guess right. what, I, what I'm saying there is. Uh, yeah, it would turn me off, but um, if if the game underneath it was cool, I I would I play it, with it, or I yes. could do something about it. Right, right, like Master of Venice. Yes. <laughs> How many variants did you play, and do you have any preferences? This is all you. I didn't uh, get to any variants. Okay, well, we played the B side rooms. That's a variant. Um, we uh, we played the two player. I guess you did. That's uh, yeah. You know, yeah. Under, but other than that, that's really it. Um, the next time we play, um, if I play with experienced players, I'd like to play where we draft the rooms. That I think that cool. would be really cool because we love drafting. Um, so next one. Argent's amount of variance is kind of unreal, but it's clear some of them can result in some unwieldy circumstances. How much value do you think Argent and other games gain by having extra content like this at the expense of some balance? Well, um, I don't know, how many variants does this game of massive variability really need, right? And balance can be definitely a tough thing. Exploitable loops being big offenders in a lot of games. And when you start jamming pieces together willy-nilly, these things can happen. But accidental discoveries in real life are made this way too. Plastics, Viagra, that super glue Gilligan made by, you know, combining palm tree sap, you know. (laughs) Cool things can happen when you jam stuff together, and bad things can happen. All right. I said I think there's a fine line here. Like with other games that we've reviewed recently, it has tons of modularity, but not much substance in some of those. Here, though, I think the game benefits from it thanks to the depth of the emergent gameplay that the variations provide. I'm not playing this looking for a luckless game. Mm-hmm. I don't mind a little bit of unbalanced gameplay in this yeah. case. When you couple the nature of the game and the fact that we're not going to play this dozens of times, I'm totally on board with it. 
So did you try any house rules, major or minor, or perhaps tweak the small rule or mix certain elements from variants in an unofficial way? Nope. Nope. We played the official variants and that was it. Small issue, but did you quote unquote tap, you know, rotate activating cards 90 degrees like in Magic? Mm. Uh, Like the game uh, says or due to space or whatever, da 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 da. So I said I tap mine and I think you just like slid yours forward or whatever, something like that. Right. I always keep them in a nice little line with, you know, OCD or something. So then (laughs) if I use one, I put it on. CDO. 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 Sorry, sorry. All right. All right, Tony, let's uh, let's put a bow on it and give us your summary, sir. Summary. Let's see. Uh, I'm surprised that given the diversity and variability in the game and its table hog nature that it really plays remarkably quickly. And I do think that um, one aspect of particular, in particular of the design is very good and I can and do appreciate is what I called earlier that tactic style of play where you have these strengths invulnerabilities and vulnerabilities of the different worker types combined with different worker counts even and having that bell tower mechanic that kind of creates this cool environment for uh, pushing how far you want to go and sandbagging and playing and how aggressive do you want to be at certain things and I really think that's very very well done it's I think this is a, a very good excellent game and I like it quite a bit I'm, I'm not really interested in it as regular fare I'm, I'm happily going to play this here and there, especially when some uh, trashy, nasty interactivity suits my mood. <laughs> what about what about you? Well, I think I'm a pretty fair guy. I like to experience things myself, or or at least try and hear both sides of things before I rush to judgment. Well, except for bad dr- drivers. Yeah, <laughs> those are all douche canoes. So, aside from them, though, I think I give things a fair shake before deciding that I don't like something. If I hadn't, I would have gone through life thinking I hate Brussels sprouts. Ugh. See, I like them. Ugh. But I hated them as a kid. Yeah, I'm still a kid. But I'm human, and I'm guilty of judging things solely by their proverbial cover. <laughs> so where's all this leading? Well, I saw Argent on Kickstarter a while back and completely dismissed it out of hand, based simply on the art, as I'm not a fan, as I've said. It was only with prodding from iFriends on Twitter and such that I took a legit look at the game. And for that, I'm grateful. Mm -hmm. Had I done as I like to think I do and give it a fair shake, I'd have noticed that this is a wonderful, fun, exciting new addition to my work replacement collection. Do yourself a favor and don't be like me. If the review has piqued your interest, go give it a fair shake and you may really like what you find. Cool. Do you have a rating for this game on our 1 to 6 scale? Yeah, so 1 to 6 real quick. 1, burn it with fire. 6. Helios. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody bought that. I We warned them. We warned them. That's all I can say. Anyway. I one put a to sympathy s- note in box. <laughs> Did you? No. That would have been better. Uh, a 6 is a Hall of Fame. 3 is we like some things. Uh, yeah, you below know, average. Right. And 4 is above average. For, right. uh, but at 4, we're going to start looking at you know actually acquiring the game, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I've really struggled with this one hmm. because I really, really like this game. You do, I know. However, it has some drawbacks. The, the, the simple implementation of whose color is whose and of how huge of a table hog it is and how long it takes to set up and all these other things kind of came in and worked against it from being a five. 
I wanted to give it a five. I oh. tried to give it a five. Really? Okay. But it had enough things to where I was like, nah. you know, little, little, you know, niggly things here and there mm-hmm. that I ended up settling on a four. But if there were such a thing as a four plus, I'd have it. Let's put it this way. Level 99 Games was gracious enough to yeah. send us a review copy. Thank you very much. I've already gone and bought the expansion right. because I enjoyed it so much. Right. So, yeah, it's it's a strong four okay. for me. It's a four for me, too. It's definitely got some uh, mechanical interests for me, and um, that, that's what led to the, the four for me. Okay. Rock on. So, in the end, that's our review of Argent the Consortium. All right, let's cruise into some Ask the Elephant for this episode. And um, there were some questions about your military service. Um, strangely enough, not asked by the government. And so uh, <laughs> what I wanted to do was uh, lead off with, let me ask you some of those questions and All we'll right. get into some game questions. So sure. number one, why did you join the military? Well, uh, it was my way of rebelling versus my parents. Okay. Um, to Well, I should say the reason or the way I was rebelling uh, to my parents was I was kind of screwing off school. I was getting B's and C's and when I could have gotten A's. And I was an idiot kid at that point. You know, I, I was disrespectful little punk. Never did drugs, didn't drink much, mm. you know, nothing like that. But long story short, I wasn't getting a scholarship. So if I'm not getting a scholarship, that means I'm probably going to the military to get money for school. Or things didn't quite work out that way, whatever. So I went and talked to the uh, Navy recruiter and the Air Force recruiter. My biological father was in a Marine Corps in Korea. My stepdad who i consider my real dad um who the man who raised me was in the navy in vietnam so i looked at navy and the air force and i happened to while i was there stop by because a friend was joining the marine corps and he was like hey why don't you come talk to him so i mentioned this to my dad that i was thinking about you know that i stopped in and talked to the marine recruiter 17 years old and he said the magic words you'd never make it Really? Oh, really? And that's all that that's all it took. Plus, damn if our uniforms aren't sharp. So oh, in the end dress blues, babe? Yeah, Come oh, on. Yeah, man. Oh, oh yeah. The best uniform on the planet. But yeah, so long story long, I guess that's why I joined the Marine Corps. It's way better than those Greek uniforms. Oh. Uh so let's see. How did being in the military change your perspective on life and the world? Um without going super long here. I just have much less patience for people in general, and it just made me realize what's important in life. Because hmm. it could be gone away in Absolutely. times of danger. So without getting political, what is something that most people who talk about the military, good or bad, probably don't realize about it due to them not having been in the military themselves? Like me. I've never been in the military, but I am a fantastic military history and patriotic <laughs> nut. <laughs> um. Okay, I I could have gone a million different ways with this, but I decided uh, to go with something that nobody ever thinks about. And that's just how hard it is on the families left behind when you get deployed. Hmm. Uh, I mean, they have to take care of everything. So everything that both, say, if you have kids, both parents are doing normally, now it's one parent. Right. Everything. I mean, just imagine only having one of you. Um, or even if you're not, it just taking care of a household and... Hmm. And, and missing the other person and having to go through your everyday life with your significant other gone. Kind of puts you both in the service. Right. And that's very much it. Um, granted, uh, I sir, I got out three days before 9-11. Mm-hmm. And so I missed a lot of 
the wartime stuff, but we did hit some combat zones, like when Kosovo was going down and everything. So I wasn't in immediate danger like a lot of folks, you know, have been since then. So I can't speak to that stuff, and I, I would never, you know, intimate that I could. Sure. Um, but yeah, I, it's really, really hard on the families. So yeah. Anyway, let's get off the serious stuff. Well, let's let's get into some game questions, and uh, since we're we're on a roll of me asking you answering, so let's sure. start the first one off in that respect. So this person says that uh, I just got into a new game group, and they're very much not into heavy games, which is which is tragic to hear. <laughs> <clears throat> Any suggestions on what I should bring that may convert them to the heavy side? Uh, well, I mean, Lahav, we always use as a very, as long as they like Euros, let's, let's start there. Right, I mean, if right. they, if they like, you know, I don't know, just regular Ameritrash type games, Lahav <laughs> probably wouldn't go over well, but Lahav is such a simple game mechanically. Two actions. Choose one. Yeah. There you go. Uh, Puerto Rico, I guess would be another good one. Puerto Rico's on my list. Um, and even games like Arboretum. I think yeah. get you thinking at least in with, with tough decisions, and I, I I feel like those those could be good. What are you? Well, I wrote uh, Puerto Rico, Concordia, twentieth century, Keyflower, Rococo, and Village. There's I I love all those. There, I think all those tons. are great. If good you ask call. eleven people, you get thirty five different answers. Yeah, no doubt. Sure. So why aren't more people playing Three Kingdoms Redux? Mm-hmm. Uh, agreed. Yeah, I, I yeah. We, we, uh, Heavy Cardboard has done a lot to spread the news about that game. It's, I think it's, it's just a small publishing company. And honestly, Westerners don't know about or, or understand the theme, which is it, tragic because it's a great, great, great story. Yep, and great game. Um, all we can do is bring the horse to water. Can't make him drink, you know? You can brick him. Uh, there, there are two, ter- two current group orders. One for the EU and one for the US. Yet, folks aren't loading up on those orders. Go fix that, people. Go order them. I'll link them again in the show notes. Which is your favorite automotive-based game and why? Kanban versus Craftwagon versus other games is what the question answerer suggests. It's close for me between automobile and Kanban. Uh... And to be honest with you, it depends on my mood, which okay. I w- which I would rank higher. Um, so it depends. I-, I know it's kind of a wishy washy answer, but um, those for, two for marine especially. Yeah, those two are uh, are are my are are definitely my top two. How about you? Uh, I've only played four automotive themed games. What's the fourth one? Automobiles number one for me. I think it's a truly classic economic game in the spirit of those I enjoy the most. Kanban is number two. It's sure. It's an incredible game and just amazingly fun. Kraftwagen is number right. three, and, and it's and it's really kind of a, a distant third, frankly. Uh, agreed it's, on It's a that. really good game. The market mechanics, its most interesting facet, and then fourth, or should I say, a hundred and fourth, is Thunder Alley. It's just to oh, me, mediocre at okay. best. Cards, cards rule, blah. All right. Uh, terrible. Yeah, I am terrible. No, no, I, no I really just don't find. That theme interesting at okay. all, and the see, game's not. not see, I'm not, interested. The in game's not interesting. To okay, me. fair to me. enough. To me, so somebody's hounding us. Yes, we are going to play Churchill. Hopefully soon. All right, there. Next one. How's the Arkwright I, I'll rules say this, video? I'll say this. Along? I'm in no hurry. Really? Yeah. 
Really? I want to play uh, TNT, and sure. I want to play some other things. And huh? I don't care when I get to that one. Okay. So I'll review that one. How's heard, that? Heard things. Well, uh, no, the dice I at the end. I want to try it, but I'm just, I'm not in a hurry, right? It's, okay. not, it's not on my top of my list, but anyway. All right, how is the Arkwright Rules video coming along? It's not. Priorities have it on the side. <laughs> I'll get to it if I get to right. it. But, uh, hey, you know who you guys should pester? Our good buddy Paul Grogan over... Oh, uh, or Rodney. Yeah. No, that's not he, Rodney's Well, game. I know. Paul, go make a video. He does of, good videos. Of, uh, so does Paul. Of Arkwright. Go handle that. All right, next question. How did your current game groups come to be, and how did you two meet and then decide on doing a podcast? I don't know the answer to the second question. Uh, the first question is, uh, we actually splintered off, I guess, of another game group here in our neighborhood. We're fortunate like that, I yeah, guess. Yeah. Um, we realized that that game group was starting to get more puppy dogs and ice cream and less into the meat like we preferred, and so if you don't like it fix it so we did and we made our own group and here we are see i thought we were at a starbucks and but we didn't know each other at the time and they called out pumpkin latte and we both reached and our hands touched wait that one <laughs> <laughs> sorry that was from a two and a half man <laughs> jesus uh yeah i don't how did we decide to do a podcast i i remember um i was th- i i started getting into podcasts and i was like Man, yeah, it, it was definitely nothing, you were saying, hey. Yeah, there's nothing out there that Is anybody stupid enough to do this with me? And I was like, how hard can it be? What the hell was I thinking? <laughs> and then actually our buddy, um, for, uh, Justin Schaefer, yeah. who's a part of the game Turned group. Turnover Games? Yeah, he chimed in and he's like, you know. And so I was already thinking about it. He mentioned it and then I was like, huh. And then you and I just kind of gravitated towards one another. So, how do you feel about semi-cooperative games? That is, how do you feel about cooperative games that have a shared loss condition? I'm not really keen on co-ops or semi-co-ops. And to be honest with you, I, I couldn't knew. think of a semi-co-op that we've played. Well, um, I mean, CO2, nah, I guess kind I of. I haven't. You know, to where, you know, <laughs> you have to be careful to make sure the whole world doesn't, you know go to tank Hmm. and within that then you have to play the game so that's the only that's the closest thing and that was fine but yeah yeah i'm really not all that that into them mostly i i think they're they're probably going to be weird games and and i feel like it's a mechanic that's hard to pull off if you look at something like um a study in emerald for example that, ah, that, okay. That's a weird game that has a shared shared loss and shared winning type conditions in there. I haven't and, gotten to it and, yet. And see, only certain crowds are going to like stuff like that, too. And, um, you know, I, I do like it. It's definitely not usual fare. It's a couple of times a year thing. And, in fact, I almost auctioned off my copy in this last, but um, but I haven't. Glad you didn't. Yeah. I mean, I have mine, but still, that... We'd need to talk about that. Second edition's coming out first. Yeah, that doesn't necessarily make it an an improvement. No. So, what are your thoughts on board games that use unconventional victory conditions? What, like Argent, you mean? (laughs) It's not that unconventional. uh, Examples being things like each player having a personal objective that can result in quote-unquote multiple winners. Do you feel these kind of winning conditions and rules are gimmicky, or do they not impact your overall impressions of the game, i.e. if the game is good or it's good? Again, it's probably going to be a weird game and hard to pull off. 
um, and really not found in heavy cardboard games. That, I, yeah. I, I tried to like think of a scenario like, oh, is this like a World War II game where you're the UK and you win if you're not under German occupation, even if the rest of Europe is? Ah, yeah. Funny you mention that because talking about Churchill, and this is probably the thing that you, you heard, is there are different end conditions. If the war wasn't, if you don't defeat Germany between the three people playing, because you're playing as Stalin, Churchill, and Teddy. Mm-hmm. If not you, Teddy. I'm sorry. Franklin. Franklin, sorry. Um, I'm looking at him right here, too. Yeah. That's funny. Um, if you don't beat the Germans, you all lose. However, you roll a die based on victory points, this and that, and the Ooh, winner. If I roll a one, I win? No, it's 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 a weighted die roll for, to add or subtract victory points. If I roll points. a 20, do I get a victory point? Stop. It's, it's uh, so that that's the big beef a lot of people have, yeah. is that whole, look, everybody lost, but fine, we'll make a winner. But you Just all leave lost. it, everybody lost. And I'd be fine with that. Yeah. But anyway, to answer the question, um, I dig unconventional stuff in general, whether yeah. it's themes or victory conditions or whatever. Um, it's just going to be hard to pull off. It is, and it's going to be rare. It's going to be a lot, a lot like, to go up back to that semi-co-op, the first game that came to mind for me was Dead of Winter. That's not our wheelhouse. That's Mm-mm. not the type of game that we want to play. Um, and nor is it the type of game that we're going to cover usually mm-hmm. on the show. So yeah, doesn't really. I don't have much experience with it. How's that? So I recently came across the designer and academic Ralph Coster, stating that chance in games is basically exploit, exploiting a part of the human mind that simply fails to understand luck, yet is fascinated by it. Which I thought was quite interesting. Well, that, hold on. Let me interrupt real quick. Yeah. Which. I understand what luck is. I, I just also know what positive EV, being a poker player, yeah. is. So, anyway, moving on. Go ahead. I'm not fascinated by luck, personally. Uh, while giving credit to the benefits of using chance in games as a balancing factor, which I don't see it as a balancing factor. Luck, and I think luck is poor, an imbalancing factor. That's a poor implementation when it's brought. Well, I guess uh, Mr. Coster compares uh, this to sugar, where it's giving really no true fulfillment but it sure does feel good if do you think randomness of game in games can be a value beyond the appeal of basic gambling and, and mitigating experience and skill for the sake of balance note i'm not really talking about randomized setups as much as random results players come across during play this is all you bro uh i've said that for the purposes of games that are in the heavy cardboard wheelhouse Luck and surprise randomness is just not a welcome feature, you know? Uh, for example, five, in, five hours into 1817, I draw a card that says my finance officer, officer was embezzling, embezzling and I lost $400. I just can't understand the appeal of this kind of random crap that results in players coming across this stuff during gameplay. Randomness of the type that is described here, that which is not simple variation, I think is just useless as a design tool in thinking games. One caveat to that would Please. be die rolls in war games, stuff like that, where <laughs> there should be some element of possibility That's that, that the improbable could happen. That's correct. And, and I like war games that, are, that have weighted tables. So like in our earlier discussion of this episode, we're talking about my two-pip against your four-pip block. If, you know, my two-pip... Is if my two pip is um, heavy tanks 
and your four pip is infantry. Is infantry. There's a certain amount of uh, weight probably given to the different die rolls. It could also be affected by the terrain. You're dug in. I'm not. Right. You know, different things like that. So it's not just hey, who rolls the most twos? Sure. It's who rolls the most of the percentage required. And you do have to have that luck random factor to count to quote unquote model. You just the don't unknown. know. You don't know what the hell people are going to do in the stress of combat, right? Sure. But you know that the old guard is most likely to do this versus the Prussian landwehr. Yeah, they're out of there. Where and also on that note is you will have done something to set up things in your favor, right? Hopefully. To mitigate any potential right. badness that might happen with that. Right on. All right, so let's wrap it up. Tell so, everybody how to reach us one more time, please. All right, email us. We love getting emails from you guys. Contact at heavycardboard.com, Twitter at heavycardboard, Facebook heavycardboard, the website heavycardboard.com, and last but not least, BGG Guild number 2044. Join Don't, the fun. Don't forget about the Secret Santa. And there's one more thing that I almost forgot to mention. Mm. Is currently our good friends over at the Board Game Group on Facebook have a cur- currently have a giveaway going on for Argent the Consortium. So if you want a chance at a free copy, all you have to do, join the group. Or if you're already there, just go on. It's sticky to the top of the page. It's a real simple question. What's your favorite color mage to use? And... Give Heavy Cardboard guys a suggestion on what game to review. That's all you got to do. The board game group on Facebook. So thanks a lot to Mo and Brian and Lyndon for the shout out over there. We appreciate it, fellas. Cool. And on the way out, let's remind you one more time about Game Surplus, fantastic sponsor of Heavy Cardboard, www.gamesurplus.com. Check out what Velma and Amos offer. A lot of good stuff for gamers, heavy and light in all points in between. I had a good time tonight. Hopefully our listeners will enjoy this uh, this babble that we've had tonight. Yeah, hopefully. Uh, sorry, Mike. Maybe next episode. And uh, with that in mind, we're <laughs> thinking about doing the Essen preview show next episode. It could be. It could not be. We don't know yet. Find out in two weeks. We'll catch you all then. Sweet. Out. Later. <laughs>